Morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll begin uh, this series. Um, the jokes have already begun. Uh, Josh has already uh, proclaimed that this is going to take three or four years. Um, I remind you, however, that when I preached through Hebrews, he said it would take six years. So, Josh exaggerates, just so that y'all know. If you didn't already know that, he exaggerates a bit. Uh, but I am not going to get past verse 1 today, just so you know. Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, so the jokes have already begun, and that's okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to walking through this this letter of Paul together uh, for however long it takes. And uh, learning from the Apostle, learning from the Holy Spirit as he teaches us. Um, I'll give you a few reasons why we're going into the letter of Romans. Um, one is to prepare our minds with truth that endures. To prepare our minds with truth that endures. Let me generalize a couple of gospels that are out there today. One of them is a gospel that leads to license. A gospel that leads to license. A gospel that says, you know what, I prayed a prayer when I was five and I'm good and there's nothing about my life that looks like I believe in Jesus, but I'm all right because I'm saved. I prayed a prayer when I was five. As we go through the letter to Rome, we're going to discover that the gospel that Paul lays out is not depicted in that way whatsoever. As you can go do whatever you want. You can live a life of fruitlessness and still go to heaven. It's just not in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, as we get on into the scriptures, Paul's actually going to deal with that circumstance. If grace abounds, shall we not keep on sinning? Another gospel that exists in our society is the gospel that leads to despair. It's on the other end of the spectrum of what I just described. It is a gospel that demands that you believe in Jesus and that you do everything by the book. It brings to bear works as a means of salvation, whereas works are evidence that salvation has happened. I say it's a gospel that leads to despair because those of you who have been in the uh, history class, Reformation history class, uh, it's basically been a thing on Martin Luther. It's moved from that. But Luther was in great despair. Man, he was trying to achieve godliness and trying to, uh, to please God with the things that he did. He was miserable. Despairing of life. 
I know so many people who live lives of despair because they're still trying to be perfect instead of pursuing holiness. We'll talk about the difference of those at, during this, but we see those. And so because there are Gospels out there that do not align with what Paul is saying, with what Jesus said, with what all the apostles wrote, we need to prepare our minds with truth that endures because the Gospel endures the true gospel. I want to challenge our thinking regarding the gospel and the ensuing life of a believer. Because that's one thing that Paul does. He puts forward the gospel and we need to be challenged in our thinking about the gospel because of the false gospels that exist all around us. The third reason is I want to take another swing at this. I preached through Romans back in, I think I ended in 2008, which means I began somewhere in 2006, 2005. Took me two and a half years the first time around. And just as a confession, I still in my heart at that time and still in my mind at that time had a great deal of a desire to please men. And although my heart and my theology was along the lines of the doctrines of grace, I pulled a lot of punches. Made up for it when I preached through Ephesians, but I pulled a lot of punches. Going through Romans. I want to be true to the word and true to my own heart. Because I no longer love the applause of men. But I love the applause of heaven. And he's well pleased in the preaching of the word of God. So, I wanted to throw that part in. As we get going, we're going to discover that Romans is a powerful word written by the Apostle Paul. More specifically, written by the Holy Spirit. And through the years, it has had a profound effect on lives. It's had a profound effect on Western Christianity In 386 A.D., a young man named Aurelius Augustine was born in North Africa, was swallowed up by a particular philosophy called Manichaeism. If you want to know what Manichaeism is, it's a blend of Christianity, Gnosticism, and Paganism. And he lived out the Paganism part. Uh, lust overwhelmed him. He made his way to Rome 
And there heard a bishop, the bishop of Milan, by the name of Ambrose, preaching. And what he was preaching is he was preaching through Genesis. And as he was preaching through Genesis, uh, just so you know, Augustine was there to hear how he presented rather than what he presented. In other words, Augustine was a sophist. Uh, he was a philosopher that was more concerned about the form rather than the content. And so he wanted to know how Ambrose delivered because he was the orator of the day. But as he sat listening to Ambrose, the message began to sink in. And he began to become convicted. And he ended up with a friend of his in a garden. And they were talking about these messages. And he was just crushed because of his sin. And he didn't know what to do. And he just cried out to the Lord. Uh, his his uh, book, Confessions, I commend it to you, by Augustine, says that he fell face first under a fig tree and wept and cried out to God. And as he was doing that, he heard children singing. And he said, I don't know if it was the force of a child or what, but it, the, 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 they, they were singing, take up and read, take up and read. And he sensed that it was the Lord telling him to read the scripture. So he went back to where his friend was in the garden and he took up uh, the letters of Paul. And he believed that what was going on was the first thing that I read. That's my answer. And so uh, he turned and he turned to uh, uh, Romans chapter 13. It was the first thing that he saw in Romans chapter 13, verse 13. It says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. <laughs> With that, Augustine saw and heard and sensed the gospel of Jesus Christ and the release of guilt and forgiveness of sin. And he knew that he had been delivered. And thus born again was the man who would set the course for Western Christianity. With his doctrine. His doctrines influenced many such as Martin Luther, John Calvin and the likes. Some 1100 years after Augustine had read those words out of, uh, out of Romans 13. An Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther would take up Romans in the midst of his despair. Despairing of life, despairing of ever being pleasing to God or ever feeling a sense where he did not bear guilt. And he took it up and he read... The righteous shall live by faith. And suddenly everything he understood. I've been trying to live by what I do. And instead now, the just shall live by faith. It impacted him greatly. So much so that in 1517, 
He asked the church a few questions. Hey, you know what? I've been reading this Bible that you gave me. And there's some things that you say that don't line up with what it says. I wonder if you could answer a few questions. Well, they took great offense to that, as you know. And thus was born the Reformation. 220 years after that, John Wesley wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? He was already a missionary. He had already traveled to America to convert Indians there. And here he was in London after that, after that journal entry. Now, May 24, 1738, John Wesley reluctantly went to a revival meeting in London. After the meeting, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. If you wonder what the content of that message was that he heard, the preacher that night read the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And out of that was born the Wesleyan revival. God has used remarkably the letter to the Romans throughout the history of Christianity. Today I want to introduce this one by you seeing that there's kind of a trail of Christian leaders that have been influenced by this book, and there's so many other stories. These are the most common ones. But by way of introduction, I want to call attention to the human author, Paul. He was converted from radical Judaism. Uh, he was radical in that he persecuted the church, he imprisoned, and even murdered those who called upon Christ. And Christ redeemed him on the road to Damascus. And there are three general themes in Paul's self-description here in verse 1 that I want to call attention to for just a few moments. I know this is one of those days where I need to get through this because we're eating Mexican food later and we need to, we need to get back there because I'm sure there's some good... Well, I know there is. I already kind of walked around. Not to mention, there hasn't been a time, although I have tried in the years that I've been here, to finish before noon so that the kitchen crew can be shocked that I finished early. We're going to take a swing at that today, okay? It's the big men in the church that say an amen to that, okay? It's us eaters. I got a little, I got a little skin in this game, okay? So it's all right. 
But there are three general themes. I, I want you to see them. Listen to just simply what he says about himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's my first point right there. A servant of Christ Jesus. What's that mean? Second, called to be an apostle. What does it mean to be called? What's he speaking of there? What is an apostle? Lastly, set apart for the gospel of God. Here we find three general themes of the book of Romans. Just right here. As a matter of fact, you could probably use those three things as an outline for the entire book. But let's just look at these for a moment and try to apply them to our own hearts and minds. First, Paul says, a servant of Christ Jesus. He identifies himself in this manner. The word servant or doulos. That's the term for servant or slave as it was rendered in King James Version. He identifies himself in this way. You may not be aware of this, but much ink has been spilled debating ad nauseum the difference between a servant and a bondservant. Okay? I mean, there's tons of it. A few people we can thank for that. I won't mention their name. But the word doulos means servant. That's what it means, servant. Context alone tells you whether it's a servant, a bondservant, or what type of servant it is. It comes in the description. Here it merely says a servant of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus there is in the uh, possessive, if you will. Possessed by Jesus Christ. He owns me is what he is saying. Let me simplify what Paul means as he describes himself as a servant. He is subject to the will of another and completely at his disposal. All right? I'm going to say that again because there's some note takers here who always say, you move too fast. So I'm going to slow down and I'm going to say that again. Paul is subject to the will of another and completely at his disposal. I have a simple question. Are you a servant of Christ Jesus? Are you subject to his will and no will of your own? Are you completely at the disposal of Jesus? What Paul's challenging us to. I'm a servant. Of Christ Jesus. Another place he says. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ 
lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer me, he said. It's Christ. Be subject to the will of another and completely at his disposal. Subject Christ Jesus and completely at his disposal. Whatever you wish, Lord, that is what I will do. I'm your servant. You know, Paul didn't become a servant of Christ Jesus on his own. He doesn't go into it here, but we know in other places that he was bent on destroying the church. Yet on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus. He met up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus saved him there on that road. Blinded him. Nobody saw anything. They couldn't see anything. They heard the voice. They didn't see anything, which implies that Paul did. That's for a moment from now. He went into town, into Damascus, and Jesus called on a brother named Ananias. He said, I want you to go to this guy named Saul. I want you to touch him. I want you to open his eyes. I want you to pray for him. He said, man, you know who this guy is, Jesus? He said, of course I do. And he's my chosen instrument. And I'm going to tell him and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. And you go and you do what I instruct you to do. And Saul was not disobedient to the word that came to him. And he lived out that as a servant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 helps us a little bit. It's helpful with us, to us, about what it means to be a servant or a bond servant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 21, he says, he writes, Paul writes, Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man. Bondservant being someone who is in servitude to someone else. And the description is still subject to the will of another and completely at his disposal. In other words, this was a position in that society a bondservant of somebody. In other words, this would be a slave. If you were a slave when you came to know Jesus, he goes on. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. <laughs> Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Huh. One of the things coming through this very clearly is, is that Jesus, whenever you are, whatever you are when Christ calls, he radically transforms who and particularly 
whose you are. Oh, if you're a slave, when you come to know me, when you come to know Jesus, Paul says this, in the Lord, you're a freed man. <laughs> Isn't that good? Are, are y'all getting what I'm saying? You ought to smile about that. You really ought to. Because, I mean, what he's saying is this, is that when you believe on Jesus, he radically transforms your heart and your mind to where being a slave is a joy because of Jesus. Or if I was free, being a bondservant to Jesus is better than being free. He radically transforms our life. Paul was radically transformed so that he became a servant of Christ Jesus, a bondservant. And he was totally at the disposal of Jesus Christ. You can see that in all the persecutions and all the troubles and all the trials that he endured. I mean, you read some of the stuff Paul went through. One of the things we would probably do is kind of like, man, I'm done with this. I'll find me something else. Not Paul. Why? He was changed radically and beautifully. And the question simply on the application is, whose are you? To whom do you belong? To which philosophy of this world have you changed yourself? To what gospel are you living your life by? Is it the gospel of despair or the gospel of license? Or is it the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets captives free? That we could live a life empowered by God. That's what Paul's doing. That first theme is this. Whose are you? Don't say Jesus. If there's no fruitfulness of the Spirit in your life. Don't say Jesus if the bent of your heart is not toward obedience in Him. A servant of Christ Jesus. What he called us to be servants. It's kind of like, well, that's for Paul. Oh, that's for all of us. And you hear what he said? If you're a bondservant when I call you, hey, guess what? You're a freed man in Christ. He radically changes us. Y'all have heard me use this illustration. People have told me throughout, uh, you know, when I ask them to write their testimony, you know what, I don't have this crazy testimony of being delivered from drugs or prostitution or anything like that. really don't have a powerful testimony. What? What do you mean you don't have a powerful testimony? It tells me in Scripture that He delivered us from death to life. Folks, if that's not radical, I don't know what is. From being dead to living... That's radical. 
Yeah, you've been changed. And all of your life ought to reflect that truth. All of the life of those who are in Christ, all of our lives as believers should reflect that we're servants. We're bound to his will, and we are at his disposal completely. Paul says, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. What he's doing there is he's establishing authority for his writing. He's saying, I'm an apostle. Now, this isn't a self-declaration. He's describing what he is. And he's uh, describing what he is by means of who God is. Okay? And what God has done in him. A couple of things I want to point out. First of all, apostles no longer exist regardless of what you hear on TBN, okay? There are no more apostles. You say, well, you know, the church down the street, they, they're, they're, their head guy, he, he, he calls himself an apostle. Well, stay away from him then, you know? And let me tell you why. Because with the title apostle comes an authority, that Paul had and the apostles had. But nobody else has. And what these guys do who take on this name apostle or this title apostle is they, they, they have something that they'll say. They'll, they'll say, God spoke to me in a dream last night and said that you should sign over your house to me. Y'all have no idea how many senior adults actually do something like that. Because they believe that what that guy's saying come from God. Let me tell you where the authority of the apostles are. It's right here in the Word of God. Okay? It's nowhere else. There's nothing to be added to what we have right here. Absolutely nothing. What Paul wrote, it was scripture. I was reading some commentator on, on Romans, and he was talking about how Paul had no idea he was writing scripture. I just kind of disagree with that. Because even Peter recognized that what Paul wrote was scripture. Paul was being used in a very unique way as an apostle. Namely, as, as the one who would write so much of what we see today and know today to be scripture. So Paul, when he's saying that, he's not taking something and saying something lightly. He is saying that he is an apostle. And he says, called to be an apostle. As an apostle, Paul was authoritative just as all the other apostles were. But I want us to look at this word, called. Paul called to be an apostle. This word, platos, is the Greek word. And in its verb form, it, it's an urgent invitation. It's a call. To a particular thing. It's an invitation to something set apart 
I know we're fixing to use that word for someone. It's an invitation that's not seen as optional, but called. Now, here's what I want you to know. That word there, called, is not a verb. It's an adjective. Paul is describing himself, not showing an action, but showing a description of what he is and who he is. He is describing himself as one who is officially invited to be an apostle. I want us to notice that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he deals with this a little bit about his apostleship and how he came to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I turned to Romans 15, and it, it wasn't there. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. But here he's speaking forth the gospel. And he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, verse 5, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. So he saw the Lord there on the road to Damascus. He heard the voice. Later on, when Paul was in Jerusalem, he said he was there in Jerusalem, and he was praying at the temple, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and he said, you need to leave Jerusalem. You see, all these appearances are speaking of the qualification he had of being an apostle. Because one of the qualifications was that he saw the resurrected Lord, and he did. He said he was called. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Listen to what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Listen to what he said. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not by the grace of God plus my decision. Not by the grace of God but, uh, plus uh, my, my want and my desire to do this. By the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, I am what I am. And that is an apostle. an apostle you know he called 
He's Paul called to be an apostle. He's describing himself with that word kletos. The adjective form of the Greek word kaleo, which means to call. How does that apply to us? Because we can't be apostles. You're right, and I'm glad you understand that. Thank you very much. Nobody can be an apostle. Keep that in mind. Don't ever turn loose of that. Someone says, you know what? The Lord spoke to me in a dream, and then whatever comes out of their mouth after that doesn't line up with the word of God. They're false. Stay away from them. Don't even listen to them. But I, I, I want us to... Let's see, how, how does this apply to us? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And let me just take a moment there. I am by no means going to, although I want to, I am by no means going to expound all of this right here, right now. But we know this verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We know that verse. We apply that verse to ourselves all the time. Okay? Uh, let's not forget what it says in the previous verse. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, According to what? The will of God. All things work together for good. What things? All things. Good things? Yes. Bad things? Yes. All of them. And then the next is an explanation of that. For those who are called according to his purpose. He has called us. According to his purpose. According to kata is the Greek word. It speaks of dominion. It speaks of one who is over another. He has called us according to his purpose. He has put us in a place under his authority and for his purpose. And just so you know. For those who are called according to those is being described by the adjective kletos, called according to his purpose. It's not the verb. It's the adjective. He's describing those for whom all things work together for good. It's those who are called, dominated, according to his purpose. He's going to apply the verb here in a moment. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yes! Y'all saw that, right? Aren't y'all excited? Are you those who have been called? Does the adjective 
called describe who you are? How would I know? Oh, your desire is the will of God. And you live your life according to His purpose and not your own. Everything's bent toward Him. Because you know where you'll lead your own heart? To despair. But do you know where He'll lead it? To rejoicing. That's what Isaiah said in the the text I read earlier. That our hearts would rejoice. Paul called as an apostle. Rick called according to the purpose of God. And any of you who are in Christ can apply that to your name also. That's what we live for. His purpose. His dominion. His power. His might. Lastly. The second general theme, by the way, is we live for His purpose and not our own. That's what Paul committed himself to. He had a huge weight of responsibility on him as an apostle. We don't carry that. But we do carry the name child of God. And we represent our Father. My boys grew up hearing that. Hey, you know what? Whatever you do reflects on me. You know why? You got my name. Paul took that pretty seriously. An apostle. Called as an apostle. We're called according to his purpose, for his purpose, to live out his purpose, no matter what. Lastly, he says, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. This word set apart is marking off boundaries, if you will. All right? I'm going to set you apart, and you have a purpose. And Jesus said the purpose is is you're going to go and you're going to proclaim the gospel, and specifically you're going to proclaim it to the Gentiles. And indeed he did. Yes, wherever he went, he started off in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus Christ. But ultimately, wherever he was, he ended up having to go to the Gentiles. And he proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles wherever he went. He was set apart for the gospel to proclaim it. He goes into, which I knew I wouldn't be able to do today, beginning in verse 2, describing that gospel and saying, what we want to do is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's that word again, called, adjective. Describing those who belong to Jesus Christ by means of God's calling. Not their own calling, but God's calling. 
Paul was set apart for the gospel. Boundaries were marked off, if you will. Paul was to proclaim the gospel as a matter of appointment by Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes there regarding his being set apart, his calling. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I'm going to stop there because I just read the point. He who set me apart, that's Jesus. Paul did not see this setting apart as something that happened in conjunction with the road to Damascus. He wasn't set apart on the day when he was going there uh, with letters giving him authority to imprison those who called upon Jesus. No, he understood the setting apart as that taking place before I was born. You thinking before he was born again? No. Before he was born in his mother's womb, he was set apart. this. He was set apart to be a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. <laughs> God wasn't making up the plan as he goes. Paul recognized, he saw it specifically and wrote about it in Galatians. When he set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Whom he knew he called. How does it apply to me? Second Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Y'all hear that? Be separate from them. From who? From unrighteousness. Now this separation doesn't mean that we need to build a wall around this 
property here and maybe get a little more property so that we can raise crops and some animals and stuff like that and have us a little commune here. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, what he's talking about here is that we're to live separately from the unrighteousness that the world has around them. If I'm going to apply this same word of set apart, he is saying, I was set apart to proclaim the gospel. And I want you to know, every single believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who has been called by Jesus Christ, everyone who has been born again, all who are in Christ Jesus have been set apart to holiness. All of us. All of us. We're not to live as the world. We don't take our cues from the world around us. We don't shape our worship services to look like the world. And we don't shape our gospel to appease the world. You live your lives separate from the way the world lives their lives. Speaking of a way of life is speaking of an intentional setting apart. It's one of the general themes that we find throughout Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That's what he calls us. We're to be set apart. Holiness. You know, you don't hear a lot about holiness anymore. You hear a lot about happiness. You don't hear a lot about holiness. As though they're opposed to one another. But I want you to know the holiness that God calls us to is our greatest joy in Him. As He shapes us and makes us. And as Paul wrote this letter, he outlined some things about himself, describing himself. And that self-description is also a description of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, go and live as God has called us, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you uh, for the gospel, Lord. The gospel that comes to us by you, from you, revealed by you. And I pray, God, that we would live it and walk it and speak it. And, Father, that it would be clear that we are your children and that you are our God. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to make known this truth. And, Father, that as we see people come to Christ, that we would be faithful to make disciples of them, to help them to see the word and to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name.